My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Ezra Morse and Ray Warniak. One way to think about a lot of different struggles happening right now is as life versus profit. So many struggles in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, and a pretty substantial chunk of the climate crisis can be understood through this lens. And along with those struggles between life and profit that are playing out at a global scale, it also shows up in much more local ways in workplaces and communities. Will a corporation give that big chunk of money to its shareholders, or will workers and communities push it to invest in better health and safety, in new tech to reduce toxic emissions, and in better wages for the lowest paid? Will a municipality take steps to protect, say, a working-class neighborhood for the benefit of people who already live there, or to preserve an ecologically sensitive area? Or instead, will they allow a developer to come in and tear up the community or the green space to make a few bucks? Ezra Morse is a software engineer and an engineering manager. Ray Warniak has worked as a wilderness guide and an organic vegetable farmer, and currently is a stay-at-home parent. Both live in Qualicum Beach, a town of about 9,000 people on the east coast of Vancouver Island. They are the president and vice president, respectively, of the Qualicum Nature Preservation Society. Since at least the 1990s, Vancouver Island has seen lots of development pressure. There was a process back then that identified ecologically sensitive areas across the island so local governments could make better decisions about protecting them. Qualicum Beach allowed a bit of development in such areas in the early 2000s, but has mostly been quite firm in rejecting proposals that would threaten them. Back in February, Morse was walking through a piece of rich, green wetland. Wetland that, as far as he understood, was a protected area. But as he walked, he noticed signs of activity that suggested it maybe wasn't as protected as he'd thought. The next day, he got in touch with local government staff and politicians to try to get to the bottom of what was going on. And the basics are clear. It's a development that will involve the construction of two large luxury homes on part of the wetland. A lot of the details beyond that, however, remain hotly contested even months later. As Morse and Warniak explain in the interview, they feel that the town has not followed its own process. For instance, no permits have been formally issued, and as reported by other media, the town's official plan and bylaws do seem to require permits in this area. They also have concerns about what seems to be a lack of documentation related to the town's process, as well as inadequate communication between the town and residents, and about answers by the town to key questions that they say have shifted over the course of the dispute. Official statements released in early April and again in early May indicate that the local government understands its actions around the development to be consistent with relevant bylaws. Moreover, in the one released in April, Mayor Brian Wise said it was, quote, most disappointing to see that there remains a small group of people who actively foster dissidents at a time when our community needs to pull together, end quote. And he described the group's rhetoric as being, quote, heavy on emotion and extremely light on facts, end quote. Notwithstanding such criticism, the group has been quite successful in raising the issue. They created an online petition opposing the development that quickly garnered thousands of signatures. 
Restrictions related to the pandemic have made it all more challenging, but they've managed to circulate flyers, get resolutions passed by other environmental groups on the island, and build support for their position among residents. They've also been working with West Coast environmental law, and are likely going to apply for a judicial review of the town's decision to allow the development. And they say there are other legal avenues open to them as well. And they don't plan on going away once this issue is settled, either. They plan to keep an eye on development in this town for many years to come. In this specific dispute, the outcome may well depend on whether certain rules were or were not followed. But it does also gesture to the larger questions of what rules, what practices, and indeed what kinds of grassroots interventions are needed to defend life in the face of the constant drive for profit. I speak with Morrison Warniak about the development, their objections to it, and the work of the Qualicum Nature Preservation Society. And just a heads up that they were outside while recording this, so you'll hear an occasional bit of background noise that reflects that. My name is Ezra Morse. I'm the president of the Qualcomm Nature Preservation Society. I lived in Qualcomm Beach for about 10 years. Currently, I'm a software engineer and engineering manager. It's what I do in my free time. But for the most part, you know, I love the outdoors. I love being outside, hiking mountains, climbing peaks, and I love running. So that pretty much sums me up, other than the fact that I'm raising my family here and I got kids that they love the outdoors. I like taking them out there. My name is Ray Warniak. I'm the vice president for Qualcomm Nature Preservation Society. I'm currently staying home with my children to raise them, and I'm a big outdoors fan also, just like Ezra here. For the most part, to tell you about who we are and what we want to do is we want to raise awareness for environmental issues, advocate for policies that preserve our environment and protect it for the people who live here now and for the future, which is our children. In addition to that, we really want to get in the classrooms and teach kids at young, impressionable ages about the environment, why it's important, and why you have to conserve and, you know, look out for the creatures out there who can't look out for themselves, can't always talk for themselves. For myself, I guess this goes back really, really far for me. You know, as a child, I grew up in, in the hills, in another place, in, in the hills of Oregon, from the States. And as I was growing up, I, I saw the world change a lot. I had, you know, 12 acres to play on. And, you know, during the time, it went from being full of frogs uh, and amphibians croaking all night to nothing. And soon, instead of rain and showers occasionally in the summertime, we'd see rain of ash because forest fires basically took over everything. So, you know, I, I saw basically development take over and we saw vast amount of environmental destruction. So when it came time for me to find a place to live, I wanted to find a place that shared my values, that shared a love of nature, a love of conservation. And I turned my eyes upon Qualcomm Beach because here's this great history of a town that, that is conserved. They've kept out a fast food restaurants. They've bought large amounts of property as a community to help keep that from being developed. I, I guess the Brown property, Heritage Forest, is a good story about that. So I've always been in that mind. And I've always wanted to pass those values to my children. I think recently what kind of turned me into, I, I guess you could call it activist, and, and I think I'm anything but, was one of my favorite places in the world. It's a place called Hoylake Road. I sat and watched for months after telling our town that they're violating the BC wildlife laws by threatening a heron colony. And they just would not stop. We had to do everything in our power to bring in the province to make them stop. And I think that really opened my eyes to the fact that I have to get involved, that, you know, I can't just sit back and watch anymore. I have to take an active role 
in ensuring that our beautiful town is preserved. I spent most of my life as a wilderness guide and an organic vegetable farmer. And in both those careers, we ended up doing a lot of bird watching and watching birds and the migration. When I moved to Qualcomm in 2013, it's something that I always do with my family, I guess. Kind of like our reward on our days off is to go out into wilderness or into these wetlands and to enjoy nature and watch animals and watch the birds and the migration. And this year, when we went to go to the marsh to find this red-winged blackbird that we go see every year, the, the trail was blocked. It was the first time I heard of it. And that's what kind of got me involved, just asking why that was happening. And, and when there was not a good answer put out, a satisfactory answer, just made me think more about why I'm not doing anything about it. I think that's what also comes down to me. One thing that really made me get involved was walking through that wetland area, and it was with my son. I remember the day specifically, and he looked at me and he said, Dad, why isn't anyone doing anything? And, you know, as at that point, I realized there's a lot of things in this world you can't control. I can't control if someone's going to do something illegal. I can't control if someone's going to destroy the environment. But the one thing I can control is if he grows up in a world where people try to do the right thing. We grow up in the society where we see our kids and we take them to these superhero movies and we take them to these movies and, and stories about people who try to get involved and they try to stop bad things from happening. But are we willing to be those people? You know, right or wrong, are, are we willing to fight that fight even if we might lose? And that's when I, I kind of had to make that decision that no matter what's going to happen, and I realize we're going up against some big people, but I want my children to grow up in a world where people fight for what's right, even if they can't win. Or even if it's hard, even if you're up against some big players, we have to create the world that we believe in. For listeners who aren't familiar with the area, talk a bit about the landscape and the environment and talk about the community. Qualcomm Beach is an absolutely beautiful area. It's the home of the Brant Wildlife Festival. It at one point used to be one of the most, I would say, almost progressive towns in North America. They had a zero growth sustainability policy. They've conserved vast amounts of green space. You can walk everywhere on trails. The end result of all this was our property prices have gone through the roof. Absolutely through the roof. I brought my home five years ago. And now it's worth probably 250% of what I bought it for. So based upon all of these ideas and this strong, rich history of civics and incredible leaders like Art Skipsy, Elizabeth Little, Anne Cleese, we've seen our town just prosper and thrive and, and become basically this haven that is amazingly beautiful. Now, during this time, there was a lot of development pressure on all Vancouver Island. I think there was a point in the 90s where we had 15% growth per year. And what essentially happened was they conducted something called a sensitive ecosystem inventory, where they found all the sensitive ecosystems and they gave them to municipalities and say, why don't you plan around these? The study ended in 97. And then in 2002, 11% of this land was actually further encroached upon disturbed. But based on these recommendations, Qualcomm Beach designated these wetlands down here as a protected aquatic habitat greenway. And since that time, every development proposal that was given to the town has been refused. So it's this beautiful piece of wetland that there's a beautiful trail through. If you look at our Parks and Recreation Guide, it's designated as green space. And it basically, it functions by absorbing all the water from the upper highlands and the upper greenway that rolls down into it and it prevents floods and erosion in the area. 
It's in the Aerosmith Biosphere Reserve. On the west side of town, we have mountain range. And on the east side of town, it's uh, along the ocean. There's over 240 different species of birds that either live here or migrate through here. Our town, we have three large bird events too. One in the winter when the herring come into town to lay their eggs. And then we have a Brant Goose Festival. And then later in the fall, when the salmon start running, we have a congregation of eagles that come to town. As you walk through the area, you're going to see owls, you're going to see eagles, you're going to see geese, you're going to see ducks, you're going to see all kinds of waterfowl, birds, and you're also going to see amphibians. You're going to see newts, you're going to see a lot of different kinds of frogs. In fact, you're going to see a species at risk, which is the northern red leg frog, which utilizes the vernal pools down there for laying eggs, which are wet year-round. How did you find out about the plans to develop this particular piece of land? I'll tell you how we didn't find out about it. <laughs> we, we didn't find out about it by going to a community meeting. There wasn't necessarily a sign posted anywhere about it. It just happened, just like that. They somehow figured out how to put a development into a protected floodplain and a protected aquatic habitat greenway without telling anyone about it. In fact, we still don't know anything about it. But anyway, we found out about it by walking through the land. By walking through the land and by calling the city and by emailing it, we eventually had enough details to know that they're doing something down there. And did the Preservation Society already exist at this point, or was this the catalyst for you to found it? Me and Ray have known each other for, what, five, six years? So we're kind of like-minded people. I go over to Ray's for ping pong beer and rock climbing on his walls <laughs> for the most part. So we know each other. We, we know where our own heads are. But definitely when this happened is when we started because we knew we just couldn't sit back anymore. And it's actually been a really amazing event for the entire community because I think this community for the last few years, a lot of the people who have environmental interests were kind of suppressed and pushed aside. And now you really see this momentum picking up in the community. So while, yeah, it was founded for that, we're going to be here for the next 50 years. We're not going to back down and we're not going to be quiet and we're going to hold our government accountable. So after you realized that something was going on on this piece of land, what did you do next? The first thing I did, I contacted the director of planning and the council, the mayor and the bylaw enforcement officer. And I clearly pointed out that this land is protected. Where's the development permit? You know, I asked for it. I asked for plans. And they had nothing to give us. And that's because there are no building permits and there is no development permit. So within 24 hours, I also reached out to the bylaw officer and asked him to intervene and issue a stop work order. And this was in February before really any significant trees were taken out whatsoever. Unfortunately, the town insisted and they made up multiple excuses for why they're doing this, none of which had any legal basis whatsoever. Uh, and just a reminder to listeners that the town disputes this. No matter how many times we ask the town for information, they don't really give us information. We filed an FOI request. I think it was within a little over 24 hours, they issued a delay based on the COVID-19 excuse and delayed it until June 10th. So we've been just completely locked out of the system. And we just have to sit here and watch an entire protected area get developed with little to no information. How have you been raising this issue in the community? The first thing we've done is we went to West Coast Environmental Law. They've been absolutely amazing. 
The one thing I recommend for anyone who is having issues similar to this, anyone who has questions and does not know what to do, to go to West Coast Environmental Law. So what they've done is they gave us media training. They gave us a legal grant. They helped us pay for a lawyer. During that time, we've learned a lot from them about how to get information out there. We always try to get ahead of the town. We always try to get into the papers and get into the media at large to let the community know what's really happening. In addition to that, we've distributed flyers. We've started a petition. I think there's almost 5,000 people now who have signed the petition who want our protected lands preserved according to our official community plan. What kinds of conversations have you gotten into with other residents about the issue? And what different takes on it have you run into? While distributing flyers, I'd say the most common reaction is surprise, a little bit of misbelief. There seems to be a lot of mystery out there, not knowing who to believe, the lack of proof or evidence. People think it's unfair and don't really know why the evidence that this was done in due process, it it can't be provided for people to see to end this mysteriousness in town. The response has been absolutely phenomenal, by the way. I walk through that area and I have people come up to me and they tell me about the wetlands and they don't know I have anything to do with it. So it's absolutely remarkable how this town who's been asleep so much is now just completely waking up and they're seeing what's happening that's wrong. And they're also seeing victories. They're seeing our group and other groups finally be able to make edgeway with the town. And now the town's finally paying attention. Explain a bit more to listeners your experience of the lack of paperwork, the lack of evidence when it comes to the town's process, and your sense of how things should be. To develop in a place like that, there's two things that you primarily need. One is a development permit that says basically you're following the DPA guidelines. And the other is a building permit, which is the most basic thing you need. There isn't a building permit. It does not exist. As far as the development permit, there's an exemption. They said that they were exempt. At first they said, yeah, they're exempt because they're just building single family homes. So it doesn't matter. We can destroy a wetland because if it's a small home, that destruction is okay. We look through the official community plan and guess what? There's no clause that says that's okay. So their new excuse was there's exemption because it came up with some reports. Well, we asked for the exemption, but guess what? The exemption, it doesn't exist. They didn't write it down. It's supposed to be verbal. So someone somewhere at the town just gave them permission to go in there without a building permit, without a development permit, and start developing. And now they do have a geotechnical report. The, the one that we have on hand, and we think it's the one they have on hand, it's hard to know, it didn't even dig holes anywhere near the home sites and maybe not even on the same legal lot. And then the environmental report says in it, it's not even going to talk about the DPA guidelines because they've already granted an exemption. So if you wind that back up, they basically granted an exemption before they went out and got these Mickey Mouse reports. So they're just completely utilizing improper procedures to ensure that this happens. And their excuses kept evolving and changing. And the unfortunate thing is now they've dug their hills in. Is this a scenario where you'd be able to get the province to intervene in some way? We have talked to the province and what the province's position is on zoning and developments is that each municipality is an autonomous government onto itself and it's up to citizens to hold them accountable. So what that means is that any municipality can do whatever it wants insofar as its citizens don't have the financial means to hold them accountable, which is a really unfortunate situation. 
But there are some provincial laws that could have been broken, such as the Water Sustainability Act, which is currently being looked into, or the BC Wildlife Act, Section 34, about disturbing nests of raptors and other birds during breeding season. Both of those scenarios are being looked at by FLNR, and we hope that some progress can be made in those fronts. And you mentioned that you've been working with West Coast Environmental Law. What legal avenues are there for you to intervene? There are many different legal avenues. One of those avenues is judicial review, where we can take them through the process and have it decided if they did do something improper, and then they have to redo the entire decision all over again. And it's very likely that we will, in fact, go that route, but there are other routes, and and we will use every means available to us to stop this. And when it comes to, you know, lawyering up and going after the municipality and developers and so on, does it feel like an accessible thing for regular residents to have to do? Absolutely not. (laughs) It's, It's awful. First off, no one wants to take the town that they love to court at all, ever. But it's complicated. And you can argue and defend any case. And it costs a lot of money. If it wasn't for West Coast environmental law, there's no way we could have possibly made it this far. What's your sense of the likely timeline for the work? Meaning, how long do you have before the development process does all of the ecological damage that it's going to do? I believe that until there are foundations on that land that we can remediate and we can fix the area. Nature heals, and with a little bit of help, you can definitely heal a wetland area and improve it. Right next to it, maybe 50 yards away, there's a federal remediation pond for wetlands that were lost when they put a road in about 20 years ago. So if the town finally listens to the people and what our community is saying, if they finally stop trying to save face, I honestly believe that it'll help us out a lot, the entire community, because this wetland here could have value as much as $126,000 US per hectare per year that we're losing, that us taxpayers are picking up the tab for every year, just so a developer can flip it and make some money. So I'm really hoping that really soon that they see the light and that they understand that taxpayers, we don't want this. It's against our official community plan and we don't want to pay for it. And we shouldn't be subsidizing a developer's income. It's essentially corporate welfare going on right now. How have the pandemic and associated public health measures limited what your group has been able to do in terms of connecting with the community and so on? Well, the local societies, the meetings aren't happening right now, and we're not able to go into the town council meetings either. We're just watching them at home, streaming them, and able to comment after the fact. We can't even comment in real time. They post them hours afterwards. And I don't even know if the radar feedback, to be honest with you. It's unfortunate. So first off, when this first happened in February and we asked questions, the mayor didn't respond until April. And the mayor responded by saying, we're a small group of people fostering dissidents. He called us dissidents during COVID-19. So the government has used COVID-19, the local government here, to both delay a freedom of information request And they've also used it to basically disparage us and our reputation. We've been asking since February. But with that said, we're doing everything we can to distribute flyers. We've had naturalist societies from Cowichan Valley all the way up to Courtney, who's endorsed our cause and has called for it to stop. So we've been trying to use the internet as much as possible so that we can raise awareness. 
And I think that's one thing that the town was not expecting. They weren't expecting a young group of conservationists who understand technology and are ready to really step up the fight against them. And what's the context like in terms of local electoral politics? It's not a good situation to tell you the truth. We have a 3-2 split. We have three councillors that always vote yes on anything that's pro-development. And we have two who seem to actually use reason and care. But for the most part, they're just completely shut out. Now, we have an election in two years. So we have two years of just basically no matter what, these kinds of things will happen and any debate or argument against them will be shut down. It's a very sad state of affairs for a town that has such a strong, rich history and civic engagement. I think another worry, too, might be the changes that happen. Maybe the last two years and the two upcoming years are going to set a precedence for the future in our town. So thinking longer term, beyond the struggle related to this specific piece of wetland, what kinds of changes do you think need to happen in terms of rules and official processes to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again? I don't think our rules and processes are necessarily the problem. There are some loopholes in the OCP. I I get that. Uh, And that's the official community plan. But with that said, it's really not being applied properly. We're not doing due diligence. We have, in the past, for decades, protected these lands. We use rigorous permitting procedures. We use common sense. And the problem now is that all of that is basically getting thrown out of the window. Instead of really being a fight about what's right or wrong, this is just becoming a fight about winning. So... Honestly, I think that our official community plan is fine. What I like in the future is the province to be able to have better enforcement measures for some of their protections. What does the group have planned for the next little while to try to push this fight forward? It's very clear that we're always going to keep pushing awareness because the more people who are aware and the more this community is talking, we get louder. I believe that we will ensure that this kind of thing never, ever happens again. As far as other avenues, of course, we're, we're going to continue to push the legal avenue. We really hope that we can continue to work with West Coast Environmental Law. In addition to that, we have a future extra pocket that we'll pull out here soon. So it's an exciting future. And one thing is this issue here has really springboarded a, a new revitalized environmental movement in our whole town. So once this goes away, you're going to see, you know, me and Ray and our other directors, we're going to be in the schools, we're going to be teaching kids, and we're going to be making sure that our town continues to remain beautiful and offer those outdoor opportunities to our future generations. You have been listening to my interview with Ezra Morse and Ray Warniak about the work of the Qualicum Nature Preservation Society. To learn more about it, go to qualicumconservation.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.